Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up in this episode, we talk a lot about space exploration on this show. Astronauts on the moon, Mars and beyond, but very rarely about the technology and engineering that gets them there. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about how to design the perfect spacesuit. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news, and joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Lara Dungan, medic and immunologist. Our first story, Lara, has to do with the Epstein-Barr virus, which we've been talking about a bit on the show. And this is quite exciting, quite um a lot of potential here. Absolutely, it does. So this is new research that's just been published in the journal Nature Communications. And a lot of people will have heard of Epstein-Barr virus and less people will have heard of it than will actually have it. So about 95% of the population have Epstein-Barr virus. It's quite famous because it causes mono, um, usually in teenagers, but most people are infected as children and most people will never be symptomatic from getting any infection with this virus. But people will have heard of mono or infectious mononucleosis, and that will have made it reasonably famous. So it's essentially glandular fever. But what it does cause, and what a lot of people won't know, is that it's well known to cause lots of cancer. So for instance, Hodgkin's lymphoma and a lot of other cancers are also related to it because it, it infects the body and it stays there essentially forever in a latent form. And it injects itself into your DNA and it can often put itself into a, a wrong place, which can end up causing cancer. But a lot of research that was published at the start of 2020 showed um, association between EBV or Epstein-Barr virus and multiple sclerosis. It's something I'm very interested in and do research on myself, actually, where I work. But what we really, really need is a vaccine. Um, so a vaccine would hopefully be the solution to all of the problems, the cancers, the MS, the mononucleosis, all of these issues. And there are a couple of vaccines that are in phase one clinical trials and another one that went on to phase two clinical trials. Um, and it was shown that it could help prevent you from actually getting the symptoms of infectious mononucleosis, but not being infected with EBV. But there's new research now that has just come out showing a new potential vaccine. It's interesting because it uses a lot of different epitopes. Epitopes are essentially small bits of protein that we want our body to look at and target. So you put them into a vaccine, you inject the vaccine into the body or whichever way, you know, some some vaccines go up the nose, some are injectable, and the body is then targeted against these epitopes or these proteins. And when it sees them on the virus or, or the bacteria or whatever it ends up being, it knows to react. React. But what we want for Epstein-Barr virus isn't just an antibody reaction. So we don't want stuff that's just in the fluid in our blood. We want our cells to react too, because this is a latent virus and it sits inside our cells and we need cells to kill cells. And that's what they're hoping for with this new vaccine. They're looking at 20 different epitopes to put all of them in at the same time to make our T cells aggressively search out and find infected cells and remove them. And hopefully this wouldn't just stop people getting infected to begin with. Hopefully it would help to treat people who already had the infection. Wow, that's phenomenal. Although that doesn't necessarily mean it would be able to treat MS or or cancer or whatever. It's the infection rather than the various pathologies that the this infection is associated with. Yeah, I mean, technically speaking, yes, what we're saying is remove the infection. But if you could remove the infection before it could cause a cancer or, or be potentially responsible for MS, then hopefully it would also have those disease modifying effects. 
Right. Ruth, our second story has to do with uh, a rather outlandish idea to try and mitigate man-made climate change. That's right, Jonathan. This is new research. Well, I suppose calculations really that have come from the University of Hawaii and they were published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science just this week. And and this is an idea that's been around for some time. Uh, You know, rather than, I suppose, changing the atmosphere here on Earth, is there a way that we can mitigate global warming by blocking some of the radiation coming from the sun? And there's been lots of different ideas put forward as to how we might do that. The most common one is that spraying aerosols, particles into the atmosphere to, to block some of the sun's rays coming through. But, but the idea of a sort of shield and particularly a space-based shield has been around even in science fiction for decades. But But the big issue with it is obviously... Space, you know, there's a lot of turbulence out there. You know, it's a very um, harsh environment for anything to survive in. And exactly like keeping your parasol up on a windy day at home, you need a lot of weight to keep a parasol robust. Um, and, and I mean, scientists have found the best place for this parasol to go or this this shield. They call it the L1 Lagrange spot. And this is a point in space that the balance between the Earth's gravity, the sun's gravity and the amount of radiation coming from the sun kind of balance out and they think they could get a shield in place there. But even there, you would need something that weighs a couple of million tonnes to be heavy enough to stay in place and not be buffeted around. But why are we bothering even looking at something like this? That sounds absolutely ridiculous. A million tonnes. Absolutely. And that's why it's kind of been, I suppose, an idea that's just been that for many, many decades. I mean, to put that weight in context, the Hoover Dam is about 6.6 million tonnes. And at the moment, the biggest payload or weight that we can send up into space is an order of magnitude less than that, only about 45,000 metric tonnes. But but this work, it kind of has a clever twist. So so this researcher, Itzvan Svezpudi, thought, well, Rather than sending all the weight up, what if we could use the weights that are already there? So a bit like, you know, rather than buying an expensive weight to put your parasol in, using stuff that's already in the garden. And what he said was, you know, if there's asteroids or other things in this right place in space, rather than, you know, we could tether some sort of shield to those using very light material like graphene. And his calculations show that the shield to block about 1.7% of the sun's radiation, which again has already been calculated as the amount that we need to block to have an impact on global warming. The shield would only have to weigh about 35,000 tonnes. So this is in the realm now suddenly of the weight that we could consider getting up into space. And look, he is the first to say this is still totally theoretical. As he puts it himself, you would need an army of engineers and huge investment to even think about this. And and look, there's been loads of criticism of even resources going into geoengineering. You know, does it just distract from, you know, us doing what we need to do to to drastically cut fossil fuel use um, for now? But but I suppose as the climate crisis worsens and, and potentially is worsening even, you know, on the worst side of the model. So maybe on the quicker side, you know, perhaps some of these things do need to come back into into discussion. And, you know, there is potentially the benefit. This could be more controllable, perhaps, than putting aerosols into our atmosphere. Once they're up there, who knows what they might do? And, you know, all of these things bring risk. You know, will they change our weather patterns, our precipitation? So interesting theory. Our third story, Lara, has to do with the fabled steps. Uh, And uh, it it seems to be a lower number than we had previously thought to get healthy. Everybody thinks it's 10,000 steps. And the myth of 10,000 steps 
has no real basis in science. But this new research that's just been published um, looked at 17 different studies. So it's essentially a meta-analysis where they looked at nearly 227,000 people across all these studies. And what they found in this in the paper they've just published in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology is that there's a sort of a minimum number of 4,000 steps per day that will reduce your risk of dying from actually all-cause mortality, and so not just cardiovascular risk. Now, they're not for a second... Except for maybe a car crash. Except for maybe a car crash if you're out walking, I suppose. I'll give you that one. But they're not for a second saying that 4,000 is the optimal. They're saying that's the point at which you will start to find the health benefits. But what they did was really interesting. They went on to look at all the people doing all the different number of steps. And every time you increased your steps by about a thousand per day, your associated risk of all-cause mortality went down by about 15% or 7% for cardiovascular disease every time you went up by 500 steps. And what that meant was that another thing that had never been proven is there is no upper limit. So they showed in a small cohort of people that were doing 20,000 steps per day that they continued to get health benefits. The more they walked, the more they got, which was really interesting because I suppose people are kind of saying, where's my cutoff? Can I stop? And if you think about the average number of steps, if we take the UK population, which would be similar to ours, their average was about five to five and a half thousand before COVID. It's gone down a bit since COVID, but it's around five to five and a half thousand. So it's easy to say, great, we're getting our 4,000. That's good. But actually, the more you do, the better it is in terms of the health benefits. We know that the World Health Organization are saying that insufficient amounts of exercise is now the fourth leading cause of death around the world. So even though 4,000 seems like a lovely attainable number, and it is great to get that at a minimum, it is very important to remember that just as soon as you hit the 4,000, it doesn't mean you go home and have six burgers and a couple of donuts. Please keep on exercising. But it's good to know that people can have an attainable, achievable goal and, and to really try and at least get to that every day. What about those 20,000 step walkers? Are they not people who would tend to have more time to walk and therefore less stress in their lives because they're not sitting in front of a computer? They're getting cleaner air because they're not stuck in a car traffic jam or something like that. I mean, is there any way of controlling for that sort of stuff? In this study, no, they didn't control for that. They have controlled for age and sex, but they haven't controlled for anything beyond that. So we could theorise, and I'm sure a lot of that comes into it, but unfortunately there's no evidence one way or another that would be a a much bigger study. And the number of people in and around the 20,000 mark was very small in the study compared to the number who were doing less. So that would need probably a study in its own right. Ruth, our final story has to do with children and Van Gogh, which uh, is the technically correct way to pronounce that artist. Although if you do say you sound like a bit of an idiot. I'm glad you said that and not me, Jonathan. I was just going to go with Van Gogh. Um, Yes, this is research from the Journal of Vision uh, from the University of Sussex. And it's a really sweet piece of research, actually. They recruited 25 babies between 18 and 40 weeks. So very, very little people and adults between 18 and 43 years old. And they decided to look at the infant's response to art and see is it very similar to adults when when they're older? So they showed them 40 different images on an iPad and of those images, 10 were paintings by Van Van Gogh, Van Gogh. And they showed the paintings in pairs. So there was 45 different combinations that they had to look at. They didn't have very long to look at them, only about five seconds. And the babies looked at them in a kind of dimly lit room sitting on their parents' lap. And they were videoed looking at them. And the researchers then went back and they 
looked to see when they were shown two pictures, did the baby's gaze linger for significantly longer on one picture or the other? They then got the adults to do the same test, but they had to pick which of the pictures they found most pleasant. So they created a pleasantness index. They were quite small groups, just the 25 of each. But what they found was when they compared the pleasantness scores that the adults gave the pictures, there was a very strong correlation with the paintings that the infants preferred. And the infants seemed to prefer um, the Van Gogh artwork compared to all the other pictures. Um, And they had a particular favourite, which was the green corn stalks, which is kind of an interesting perspective picture. I mean, again, previous work had shown like we kind of know infants like colour. They like bold pictures that have contrast because their eyes haven't fully developed yet. So maybe that's not surprising. But here it wasn't just that they liked variation in brightness. They like things with a range of colours. The adults also had preferences for things that had unusual perspective most of the time, whereas the babies liked simple pictures. And um, so the researchers described it as a kind of Goldilocks zone. The babies liked things that were not too simple, but not too complex. So they were kind of interesting. Uh, so what the researchers are saying is it shows that that really babies abilities, babies ability to appreciate aesthetics are kind of there much earlier than we knew, um, which which is kind of sweet uh, that it's there. It's a small study, but uh, certainly it's it's a thumbs up for, for Van Gogh and uh, bright colours for babies. Why Van Gogh? I mean, I think they seem to have a preference for curves, the babies. They like branches, they like leaves in pictures when they looked at where they looked. And I suppose Van Gogh famously has all those swirls. But I think it's probably down to contrast and colour. I mean, these are very small babies. Their eyes aren't fully developed. I mean, there is an element. They are attuned to look at faces and faces have a lot of curves on them as well. That was one hypothesis put forward. But we don't really know. Maybe there's just something about Van Gogh that we, we all love no matter what age we are. Yes, and I was at the uh, the immersive exhibit um, only a few months ago and learned that Van Gogh uh, was reportedly colorblind or, or potentially colorblind, which is why we see such vivid and inverted commas incorrect colors in his painting. That was pretty cool. Um, okay, uh, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation, Dr. Lara Dungan, thank you very much. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Now, what goes into making a spacesuit? Well, for my next guest, space is pretty much the family business. Amy Ross has been with NASA for 30 years and she is a spacesuit engineer who specializes in pressure garments. She joins me now. Amy, welcome to the program. How do you, how do you fall into a family business of making spacesuits? Well, that's a, a good question. It's not an, a normal path to a career. Well, maybe it is. Uh, so familiarity, right? Being exposed to it and having my father in the space business, uh, he served as an astronaut. And my mom also was in the space business. She worked on the space food for this shuttle and station program. Um, made me familiar with what it was. Um, made me know it was something you can get involved in. Honestly, I thought I was going to be a flight controller, you know, sit in mission control and help with the missions. Uh, But I stumbled into a summer internship with the spacesuit group and my mentor, Joe Cosmo, and I fell in love. Oh, nice. Um, And tell me, you know, when you're, I guess, with spacesuits, there's this a real specialization. Did you work on the whole suit or do you work on the fingers or the the boots. Does everyone get really specialized as is the case with most of uh, space Some technologies? Of 
The suit as a whole, as a system, is composed of two main subsystems. There's the portable life support system and the pressure garment system. The portable life support system is the box on the back, the backpack, and it has, you know, pumps and regulators and tanks and, you know, stuff. Uh, And so that's very classical mechanical and electrical engineering kinds of things to do. And most people um, think it's kind of a magical black box and they, they don't Well, some people fall in love with that part, but I don't. (laughs) I like the part with the human in it. So the the piece that looks like the the outfit that the astronaut wears, that's the part I work with, and that's the pressure garment. And that's what I've mostly done. I've done some specialization in gloves, but I was the lead for the advanced pressure garment technology development team for quite a while, and so I had to do all of it. When you say a pressure garment. So space is a vacuum, which just means there's no air. Um, People need air. And pressure, you know, like atmospheric pressure on the body for the body to work right. And so we need to put that bubble of atmospheric pressure and breathing gas, oxygen, around the human. And the way we do that is make a human-shaped balloon, and that's the pressure garment. Yeah, so this would give that sort of um, Michelin man sort of style garment that we saw in the early um, manned space missions. But that sort of approach has changed dramatically. How... Uh, are the spacesuits of today being made and and why are they much more slimline? Yeah, one of the things you saw in the Apollo program is we had a, a suit that did three different jobs. So that pressure garment did um, crew survival, so launch entry abort kind of scenarios. It did microgravity EVA, spacewalks, extravehicular activity, and it did planetary surface, you know, spacewalking. Today, what we're getting to do is be a little more specialized in the things the suit does. So I've gotten to focus on a planetary walking suit most of my career. And so that then lets you really improve the capabilities, mobility capabilities, walking, kneeling, um, upper body movements in that pressure garment. So um, talk me through the the changes or at least the, the technologies required and the research that goes into making one of these suits, because obviously materials are important. Um, but also dexterity, right? Yeah. So that's one of the fun things about the job. I really like the variety I get out of it. Um, so I know a little bit about a lot. (laughs) I'm a mechanical engineer by training, but I know a little bit of material science, textiles, um, composites. I know about some physiology. I know about geology and how it's performed. I know about space operations to a degree. Um, I know, gosh, (laughs) tools that you use, vehicles that you go into. So because the human's in the middle of the suit and the human's in the middle of all the systems, that means the spacesuit's in the middle of all the systems. Um, So, you know, we're always looking for things like electrochromic visors that allow you to have that um, visor capability, the sunglasses in the suit, the visor capability, um, without having to actually have a physical visor because in a dust environment that can get gummed up, right? It can be a problem, scratched, among other things. Uh, We need insulations. When we go to Mars, Mars actually does have an atmosphere, not a very thick one, but it's there. Uh, Our technologies to date have, for thermal insulation, have been predicated um, on the vacuum environment. (laughs) So when we go to a planetary environment that has atmosphere, that's actually new to us in spacesuit design, (laughs) which seems silly. But we need new technologies for the thermal protection in that suit. Otherwise, you really would be the Michelin man. 
So talk me through the materials and what they specifically do. Like, um, are you using materials that we would be familiar with clothes um, for normal civilian use? Or do you have uh, very special type um, materials that are designed just for space? It's kind of a mixture, actually. Um, So polyester uh, is something that we're fairly familiar with. We have polyester in the suit. Uh, We have things like Kevlar. Uh, I think most people think about Kevlar and bulletproof vests. We use it as a, a rip stop in our outer layer of the spacesuit. So if a rip gets started, it doesn't get, it stops. It doesn't continue to rip because uh, rips in a spacesuit are bad. Um, and then we have some new materials on the advanced technology side of things, flexible aerogels. You're starting to see them now in some commercial products, uh, mountaineering gear and that kind of thing. Uh, but NASA was one of the organizations that helped start going from aerogels to flexible aerogels so that they can be used in commercial products now. You talked about Kevlar being sort of the, the scratch protective um, material. When you have, you know, presumably with, with gloves, for example, you want to have a lot of dexterity. That means, you know, thin layers, I would imagine. But, you know, how do you figure out the trade-off between tear uh, which, which uh, just as a side, I presume tear is really bad. <laughs> really bad. Yeah, tear can mean death, right? So that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. That is bad. And do you mind just taking me through that? Yeah. So, um, because I, I do remember uh, hearing, I've interviewed a few astronauts and, and the various stories they had from throwing up in their suit and, and lots of other horrible things. Um, uh, I, I don't remember anyone getting a tear, I don't think. What, what happens if you get a tear in your suit? We know this from testing and just physics, but because it is a balloon, it's a balloon and we have a, a layer uh, that is the material that holds the gas in, right? Um, but outside of that layer, we have multiple other layers. The next layer out from the inside, from the away from the human, uh, there's the that, that balloon layer, we call it the bladder. Then the next layer is called the restraint. That's a, it used to be a polyester, now it's a, a spectrum material. That's what holds the balloon into its human shape. It also gives the suit its strength and its mobility in a lot of cases, Mm. that and bearings that we use. Um, And then outside from that are all of the environmental protection layers. So cut resistance, tear resistance, um, thermal protection, you know, that kind of thing. And so you have to break through a lot of layers to get down to that bladder to get a tear that Mm. could actually be harmful to the human, right? So if you do get a tear in a spacesuit, all the way down to that gas retention layer, the bladder, then you're letting the environment out of the spacesuit, right? So you're letting your oxygen go away and your pressure go away. And depending on how quickly that happens or how big the hole is, same thing really, um, then you might have enough supplemental oxygen to make up for that leak uh, or you might not. Okay, so we do protect against certain size holes to give you time to get back to an airlock where you can get back inside the spacecraft and be safe. Um, but if you get a big enough hole, then your your oxygen leaves the suit, your pressure leaves the suit, you start to go unconscious, and then your body starts to, you know, um, have very not nice things happen to them. Swell. Because your body is full of water and air, right? And so if you have a... A pressure on it and you take the pressure away you know just like if you have a balloon in a bell jar um, then that that release of pressure is going to 
make everything expand. So yes, you will swell among other things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when it comes to dexterity in a glove, how do you allow that, um, nimble movement of fingers with all of those layers are our gloves um uh, do they have all of those layers or do you have to be think differently about the gloves yeah that's a good question we do think a little bit differently about the gloves so we try to be very cognizant that humans have great capability in their hands i mean you really your hands are amazing and that's one of the things that working on space makes you appreciate very much is just how capable the human body is um so we try to provide thinner materials. So that gas retention layer that we have, the bladder is a um, just a film material instead of like a, a coated fabric to make it thinner, to make it more flexible. Um, we do manage our thermal insulation around the gloves so that we can have uh, the fewest layers as possible to allow the most mobility we can. But it is a real trade. And so you really do have to look at your mission requirements, what your spacewalks are going to look like, and try to hit the right balance between things like durability and mobility. Mm. When you test them out, do you ha- what sort of analog do you use for space? Because presumably you need to, to know that they work in space. It, do you just know that from, from just the basic material construction? Or do you have some sort of way of testing them before they go up to, to orbit? Yeah, no, that's a good question, too. Um, So, you know, when you are wanting to make sure something is safe before you use it, you usually want to test it in the same conditions that you're going to use it, right? Um, But that's difficult to do (laughs) uh, because you can't simulate all of space in one place, okay? Uh, So we have various different um, facilities and test scenarios that we use, and we can test all the way down to just the material, you know, requirement level to make sure our materials are safe in the temperatures we're going to use them um, are, are strong enough for what we need to do uh, at that level. But then we always do go up to the, the like a glove level, a, a component, and then the whole system. And we test in things like a glove box where you can make a delta pressure. So the suit, the glove will see the real pressure it would see in space or the real delta pressure it would see in space. Uh, so you may not be at a vacuum, but it still feels like it's pressurized to the pressure the suit would be at when you're on a spacewalk, right? And then you can do activities. We also have um, thermal vacuum yeah. chambers we can do tests in as well. Uh, and then you also include them, the, the gloves in suited testing with the human doing realistic activities just to see how well they wear as they interact with tools and go through the motions repeatedly. I, I know from um, studying um, and hearing about design from engineers for many, many years that uh, you know, the way something looked was not really of a huge amount of importance to engineers, certainly in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And even if you look at, you know, the, how um, the European Space Agency would promote its, uh, you know, its, its space missions, it, they would just show you a photograph of a box covered in tinfoil and expect you to get excited about it. But, but now things have changed and I think science communication is really important. NASA, how they've communicated with the public has dramatically changed. And I'm wondering when you're designing suits does any part of you think we've got to make this look really cool or does 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 how it looks on the outside matter at all to anybody uh so the world's changing right but the way i was instructed um my mentor was joe cosmo he worked on basically every suit we've flown uh i think past maybe mercury and what we used to do on friday afternoons is go over to we had a 
Apollo suit in the lab. I'd go find a feature on it and try to figure out what that feature was about. The lesson there was everything is on the suit for a reason. Maybe it was a manufacturing holding Mm. point. Um, Maybe it was a test point, you know, but it was always there because you needed it. When you start working on spacesuit design and you're and you're serious about it, uh, because you're you're the you're a life support system. People die if you don't do your job right. So first and foremost is you need to do that job well enough <laughs> that an astronaut can take it for granted, right? Yeah. So that they can complain about. Um, what mobility they don't have, or they can tell you what's not comfortable, or they can tell you what does work. Uh, So they're just focused on how well the tool serves them to do their job. And they aren't worried about the staying alive bit. I have found over my 30 plus year career that there are enough considerations (laughs) that you have to manage that trying to make it look pretty isn't high up in the priority list. (laughs) Um, I know some Hmm. commercial vendors have prioritized that. Uh, I I think when you dig down to what they ask of their hardware versus what we try to get our hardware to do, um, there's levels of performance that you are sacrificing in part to make it look pretty. Um, right. That's interesting. Um, I, I, the other thing, of course, is um, when we talk about times changing is that there are a lot more women in space. And up until maybe what, 20 years ago, suits weren't really designed with women in mind. Is is that has that completely changed now? Do, do you have two different suits for men and women? And are there any changes that would surprise us? Uh, that's a good question. And I will say probably the, the suit that we now use on the International Space Station did take women into account, but, um, you know, it was originally designed for the shuttle program back in the 70s. Uh, we, I think they weren't a large piece of the population, right? <laughs> so sure, yeah, we'll fly women. But hmm. interestingly, though, I haven't found the need to change geometry <laughs> of components like the hard upper torso, the top of the suit, the shirt of the suit, um, or the waist for females versus males. Um, what we have is an anthropometric range, so the the dimensions of the different body parts that we design to. And really, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman with that dimension, we have to fit those dimensions. And so the, the female unique anatomy versus the male unique anatomy doesn't really, um, we're a big enough shell over the body that those things aren't niceties that we have to address, honestly. <laughs> Really? Okay. So, so um, even designing now today with a lot of women going to space, the the suit doesn't need modification, particularly um, for women. Not that I found. You know, when we get, went into the when NASA went into the Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit Garment, the XEMU, um, that we were developing to go back to the moon, we started with a small suit. Um, and the reason we did that wasn't a female consideration, really. It was it was nice because we don't usually get to start small because we normally build suits to be big so we can put as many different people in them as we can. Um, but when you smart start small, because you have a lot of different interfaces and a lot of different hardware you have to fill in the suit, it makes sure you're not cheating. You know, it's like packing in the um, 
when you're going on vacation, it's packing in the carry-on versus the big suitcase you check. Uh, if you can get everything in the carry-on, then you know you're good, right? <laughs> you know it'll fit in the in the big suitcase. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of how we approached it is let's start with the, the smaller size to make sure everything actually will fit onto this um, size and, and shape so that when we go to the bigger size, we should have fewer issues making sure things have space. What is it like watching humans go into space knowing that their lives are in some reasonable amount of respect? <laughs> in your hands. I was hoping to get that firsthand feeling with my um, my moon suit. Um, we have vendors now building suits for that mission, but I did it with the gloves. Uh, and I can tell you, I went down to the launch of that flight where we first flew the phase six gloves. And I, I left work with some paperwork that still needed to be closed out. The, the gloves were already on the shuttle. And when it was actually my dad who went out in those gloves for the first time and he was using them and then he came back in after the spacewalk and everything went well. Um, you don't realize how, <laughs> how, how concerned you are <laughs> until the relief is um, there because <laughs> then you realize how relieved <laughs> you are, right? <laughs> so... Um, I can only imagine what the full suit situation would be like, but I, I can tell you from flying those gloves, you feel very personally responsible. And really, it takes every single individual from the individuals sewing stitches to the folks doing the quality checks to the people doing the testing on materials to do it right and well and understand what they've done, understand what it can mean for the astronaut flying to make sure we can keep them as safe as we have been able to do. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time, spacesuit engineer with NASA, Amy Ross. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Uh, there was a, a very diplomatic reference there, I think probably to either Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I can't remember which one had hired a spacesuit designer from like the 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 Hollywood blockbuster sci-fi films to design the spacesuits for their astronauts, for their civilian uh, tourism uh, space programs. I can't remember whether it was Blue Origin or uh, Elon Musk's stuff, but uh, uh, yeah, the, the, there was a lot of thought going into making things look cool. Time to look back at some of your comments from last week now. And uh, if you remember, we spoke to Professor Silke Weinfurtner. She's from the University of Nottingham, and she's built essentially a jacuzzi uh, to look at flow of water to mimic the flow of energy in space and understand how black holes work and try and, you know, experimentally test out some theoretical physics of, of uh, astronomy and she was using superfluids in one experiment and using regular water in another one someone asks how does a fluid become a superfluid well the, the idea as far as i can make out is that you, what you want is an almost frictionless flow of liquid and that happens at very very low temperatures so near zero near minus 270 something um degrees centigrade and, and things like helium and so on then become these superfluids which can uh, in in these experiments mimic uh, what's going on in space uh, at least that's the claim uh, so jonathan um are you essentially telling me i can create a black hole in my bathtub at home no you can't but if you have 
you know, the right setup. You could create vortices. You can create um, water flows and energy movements like the, the movement of, of waves through water that mimic some of these um, physical phenomena that happen in space. And this is how quickly can a black hole form? Well, as my understanding is the collapse of a star happens in seconds. And uh, that's when you have a really big mass of a, a, a sun that collapses in on itself and you essentially have a, a black hole instantly. But you have to have the right environment for, for that to happen, is my understanding. And someone else is asking, if you remember, we were talking about sun cream and how there's not a lot of scientific evidence that it works. Now, I was on Inch Beach two days ago and I had some parts of my body sun creamed and some, some not. And it's very clear that it does work. We know it does work, but there's not a lot of scientific research into it, how much we should put on and so on, and whether or not uh, it has different effects on different types of skin types, different colors. And so we were talking about that last week and someone says, is there much of a difference between UVA rays and UVB rays? Essentially, it's the length of the wavelength that determines whether something's UVA or UVB. UVB are the more harmful ones we associate with the uh, skin cancers and and, uh, burning of your skin. UVA is more, uh, I think, associated with aging of the skin. All of your sun creams should protect both against both of those and you know me personally we were talking about you know home remedies and, and people making up their own sun creams i would be choosing a brand that is you know there's a reputable skin brand that is help would be held responsible if their products weren't doing what they were told me personally i wouldn't be going to a herbal shop or a holistic shop to get my sun cream but that's just me uh, that's it from us on this week's future proof hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to get in touch on any of those subjects you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on twitter we're at newstalk science thanks to our production team this week marisa sullivan john burns steve daunt and Hugo da silva on sound we'll be back with more future proof in your podcast feed on tuesday in the meantime stay curious Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.